Would you please open up your Bibles to Matthew? This is Advent, the season that we remember the coming of Jesus, his Advent. And uh, so we take a break a little bit from 1 Corinthians each week. And the next few weeks, we'll focus on our Lord Jesus Christ and his coming here to be the one who saves us from our sins. Matthew chapter 1, verses 1 to 17. This is the word of the Lord, and it is eternally true. The record of the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers. Judah was the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar. Perez was the father of Hezron, and Hezron the father of Ram. Ram was the father of Minadab, Aminadab the father of Nashon, and Nashon the father of Salmon. Salmon was the father of Boaz by Rahab. Boaz was the father of Obed by Ruth. And Obed the father of Jesse. Jesse was the father of David the king. David was the father of Solomon by Bathsheba, who had been the wife of Uriah. Solomon was the father of Rehoboam. Rehoboam was father of Abijah, and Abijah the father of Asa. Asa was the father of Jehoshaphat. Jehoshaphat the father of Joram, and Joram the father of Uzziah. Uzziah was the father of Jotham, Jotham the father of Ahaz, and Ahaz the father of Hezekiah. Hezekiah was the father of Manasseh, Manasseh the father of Ammon, and Ammon the father of Josiah. Josiah became the father of Jeconiah and his brothers at the time of the deportation to Babylon. After the deportation to Babylon, Jeconiah became the father of Shealtiel, and Shealtiel the father of Zerubbabel. Zerubbabel was the father of Abihud, Abihud the father of Eliakim, and Eliakim the father of Azor. Azor was the father of Zadok, Zadok the father of Achim, and Achim the father of Eliad. Eliad was the father of Eleazar, Eleazar the father of Matan, and Matan the father of Jacob. Jacob was the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, by whom Jesus was born, who is called the Messiah. So, all the generations from Abraham to David are 14 generations, from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations, and from the deportation to Babylon to the Messiah, 14 generations. This is the word of the Lord. Father, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of every one of our hearts be acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, our strength and our redeemer. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. So this is the beginning of the gospel of Matthew, and Matthew is the first of the four gospels, and this is also then the beginning of the New Testament. Right out of the gate, what the New Testament records for us is the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah. Now, each one of the Gospels has a different feel to it, a different um, presentation, different identity. And the commentator Hendrickson talks about Mark being a swiftly flowing river that bounces from shore to shore but rushing headlong that Luke is a large, deep river with great variety in its colors and depth, but that Matthew is a very orderly river with sections moving swiftly, other sections, pools and eddies where the water sits and rests for a time. But Matthew's style is orderly. And he's quite sophisticated in terms of literary method. So his gospel reads quite well with a great deal to sustain the reader's interest. Matthew also shows the greatest attention of the gospel writers to the fulfillment of Old Testament prophecies in his account of Christ's life. He has a very large number of quotations from the Old Testament introduced by words such as 
that what was spoken might be fulfilled or and so it was written by the prophet. For instance, here in chapter 1, a little later in verse 23, we read, Matthew says, now all this took place to fulfill what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet. And then he quotes the prophet saying, behold, the virgin shall be with child and shall bear a son and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which translated means God with us. So then you go back to the Old Testament, to Isaiah chapter 7, the prophet, and he wrote, therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign, behold a virgin will be with child and bear a son, and she will call his name Emmanuel. Or again, in Matthew 12, 15, we read, but Jesus, aware of this, withdrew from there. Many followed him and he healed them all and warned them not to tell who he was. And then it says, this was to fulfill what was spoken through Isaiah the prophet. Behold, my servant whom I have chosen, my beloved in whom my soul is well pleased. I will put my spirit upon him and he shall proclaim justice to the Gentiles. He will not quarrel nor cry out, nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets." A battered reed he will not break off, and a smoldering wick he will not put out until he leads justice to victory. And in his name the Gentiles will hope. In the old days I used to get two hours to preach to you. And I don't mean I did, I never have. I mean, pastors in the old days used to get a lot of time, and so they could, they, could, they could really, really, you know, bore you. Now, I want to I make a comment here about this. Did you notice the identity and the nature of Jesus Christ as he was prophesied in the Old Testament and as Matthew describes him? I want you to recognize how constantly Jesus is described as being an advocate for the poor. It's just constant. Did you notice what it says about him? I will put my spirit upon him and he shall what? Proclaim justice. Justice. Can you imagine how parachurch organizations and evangelicals and reformed pastors would describe the calling of Jesus. They would not say that he came to proclaim justice. Or they would say yes, and that's another pointing to the God being just, you know, the sinful man being justified through the righteous, the alien righteousness of Jesus Christ. In other words, it would be Christology. Do you understand? And why? Well, the reason is evangelicals and parachurch and reformed people like me are rich. And we just don't see God, let alone ourselves, being interested in the poor. And so the only purpose of Jesus being born in a manger is to show us the humility of Jesus. It's not, it doesn't have anything to do with solidarity with the poor. It doesn't have anything to do with his concern for the deaf, for the dumb, for the blind. And if we have a hack at the, at the hymn, we'll take it out. Didn't they take that verse out? I think they did. Hear him ye deaf, his praise ye dumb. <laughs> I think they took it out of the Trinity hymn. I may be wrong about it. Carol, do you know? I think they did. Because, of course, that's one of my favorite verses in any hymn anywhere. Is it? Yeah, look it up and see if it is. I thought you had the Trinity hymnal with you. Oh, for a thousand tongues to sing. Hear him ye deaf, his praise ye dumb. And it's not referring to me being stupid. So, what, what do you say? Is it really? It's not in the old Trinity hymnal. <laughs> yeah, yeah. We don't have any deaf and dumb. And certainly no poor. Listen, here's what he is identified as. He's identified as a servant in whom God his Father is well pleased, who God puts his spirit into him, Jesus, and he shall proclaim justice to the Gentiles. And then if you're wondering what's the nature of the justice, it says, he will not quarrel, nor cry out, nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break, and a smoldering wick he will not put out, until he leads justice to victory. And in his name the Gentiles will hope. And again, 
what's with the Gentiles? Who are the Gentiles to them? Gentiles are despised. So Jesus is constantly showing us that it is at the very center of the Christian message that you and I identify with Walmart. We don't shop at O'Malley's. Now you're going to say, oh, come on, where did that come from? I say, okay, all right, you can shop at O'Malley's and you don't have to go in Walmart if you don't want to. But show me someplace where you have the concern for the sick, the poor, and the oppressed the way your master did. Right? Is everybody with me? Just go ahead and try it out. Yes, go ahead, say it. Okay, there, I just wanted you to agree with me. All right, we're moving on. So here's what Isaiah said that Matthew is fulfilling. And of course you understand that this is the whole thing. What, every, what all these sophisticated reform guys think is, look, in the old days, the liberals were always concerned about social justice, and look where that led them. Now they're promoting homosexuality in the PCUSA, and we can't do that. So we'll just gag ourselves when it comes to any social justice issue, and then we'll be able to keep the pure gospel. But since when has the gospel ever been separated from God's concern for the poor? I mean, what is it to be under the burden of sin? Isn't it to be a poor man? How on earth can we go around trying to segment and compartmentalize life? And here we have economic life, and over here we have you know, the death of unborn children, but here's the gospel. You know, how on earth do you proclaim the gospel to a woman who's murdered her unborn children with, while avoiding abortion? You know, it's just, we have to love those that God loves. We have to proclaim justice, you know? And that doesn't mean that we turn into liberation theologian priests in Central America. You know what I'm saying? Does everybody understand this, or at least somebody? Okay, all right, okay. Yeah, it's the physician that says yes. I mean, do you think he cares about sick people? You know? I mean, oh, okay. All right, here I go again. Listen, it's not accidental that in this church, we have a doctor and we have a dentist who are concerned for the poor. And if you think every doctor and every dentist is concerned for the poor, you're crazy. When my father got done being the executive director of the Christian Medical and Dental Society for a few years, he did that, he had two hats, David C. Cook and CMS and D and N and who knows what else. When he got done, he didn't want to be around any doctors. He was utterly disgusted with Christian doctors. Why? Do you know why? Because of money. He wouldn't want me telling you this. I was in his family, I know. And so here we have a doctor and a dentist, and do you know that both of them are motivated by compassion? Do you know this about your elders? You should know this about Lawrence and Adam. They their concern for the suffering. Yesterday I was trying to get Kenneth Che a gig at Wheaton College because he wanted to be a part of their artist series. And so I was working on it and I wrote somebody and that person said, well, Wheaton already has a whole bunch of very good musicians. And so today I was listening to musicians we had up front. And I was trying to think to myself, okay, um, I, I know Wheaton has good musicians that go through the conservatory. I know that. But I don't think they're good like our musicians are good. But how do I defend that, you know? Well, I can talk about some of the players' positions they have, some of the chairs, you know, at the, at the Lyric in Chicago and the Grant Park Symphony Orchestra and... You know, some of these other, James Romeo someday, soon maybe, you know, and, and who knows, Alex has probably squandered it, but, you know. <laughs> and certainly D-Wayne has squandered it. <laughs> 
And then I listened to them and I realized why I believe in terms of musicianship, our musicians are better. It's not because they're at Juilliard, all right? That's not why. Why do I think our musicians are better? And it hit me this morning. Why are our musicians better? Because our musicians do their calling better than other people do it, the same way our doctors have compassion better than other doctors. And the reason is that godliness always makes us better at what God calls us to do. You know, our mothers, ding dong, are better. Our wives, ding dong, are better. Our, our single women and single men, ding dong, are better. And you're all sitting there going, uh-uh, not the kid, not me. <laughs> you know? No, 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 trust me. It's sanctification. It's slow. It's painful. But God always perfects his people. And listen, God wants to perfect us in taking on the image of his son. And his son had a preference for humility and poverty and sickness. <laughs> Good grief! Is this really so hard for us to understand? Why are we always trying to separate out everything about the character of God except just the pure gospel. And then, you know, I'm not going to invite anybody to the concert. That's not the gospel, you know. And what we're really doing is exactly what they, they rebuked us about this morning, which is we're protecting our pride. And the more things we can protect, let's remove abortion over and remove sodomy and remove the concert over here and remove, you know, we just got a whole bunch of stuff to get rid of so we can just get right in there to the gospel. You know, I'm not going to be concerned about the poor. I'm, I'm not going to repent when I honk my horn at some older person. Just, but when it comes to the gospel, pastor, thank you. That was a gospel-centered message. And here Jesus is. We know who he is, right? Because the, the gospel of Matthew starts out by telling us what? It tells us that this is what? The record of the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. And so Jesus is what? You should call his name Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. And listen, when we go on through this genealogy, what you're going to see is the genealogy is filled with the poor. And a lot of them are poor because they're wicked. And a lot of them are poor because they're Gentiles. I think there's three that aren't, don't even rise to the level of the people of God. You know? So let's be concerned about our next door neighbor and not just at the point where it's sin and righteousness and judgment and Jesus died for your sins. Let's love them and then when we share the gospel with them, when we proclaim the gospel to them, it will have a context. I don't want the context to displace the kernel. Right? You know, all this stuff about lifestyle evangelism and friendship evangelism is bunk. <laughs> you know, you can't get by the scandal of God's son dying. There is a reason that emergent pastors call it divine child abuse. It's scandalous. But if we try to go over to our neighbor and say, hey, do you have a couple of minutes? I'd like to share the gospel with you. And we haven't bothered to shovel their driveway when they have a heart attack. And they haven't seen us have anybody coming to our home that doesn't fit the neighborhood. They haven't seen us caring in our, in our, in our dentist's office for people who are screaming or retarded. Do you understand? What's the context? 
What was the context of Jesus saying, come to me all you who are weary and heavy laden and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me for I am meek and humble of heart and you shall find rest for your souls. The context was that he's from Nazareth. Can anything good come from Nazareth? The context is he was born in a manger. The context was that though he was equal with God, he humbled himself. He didn't consider equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he humbled himself. And so then when he came to Jerusalem, he did not rise to the level of significance that the Pharisees thought he should. (laughs) You know? Ding dong! He's from Bedford! Martinsville. (laughs) Can you imagine some flunky from Martinsville rising to the level of significance of the university in Bloomington? I mean, just ask yourself a question. Would somebody from Martinsville become the president of IU? (laughs) I mean, it's just hilarious. I mean, at least Adam's laughing. All right, all right. Sorry, but listen, if you think that I'm just disconnected from life, and that's why I'm saying these things, I am not disconnected from life. You know that, that hymn that was up there called A Little Town of Bethlehem? You remember that verse that says, how silently, how silently, the wondrous gift is given. When I was a child, my father wrote a short story called How Silently, How Silently. All right? You know what it's about? It's about Jesus coming to Wheaton. You know what Wheaton is? Wheaton is Jerusalem. It's where Christianity Today, Christianity.com, all Evangelical Alliance Mission, you know, Wheaton call, all this all the apparatus of the Bible-believing church in America today has its headquarters in Wheaton. Okay? And so dad, my dad, wrote about Jesus coming to Wheaton. And so who did Jesus show up with? He went to the church, to college church, but he, he, he didn't really get a reception there. So what did he do? He went to a single woman who hung out with a bunch of sort of like hippie poverty people. And the whole story is about Jesus hanging with them and bringing to them the gospel. You know, it's like, who do you think Jesus would be hanging with this Christmas Eve in Bloomington? Have you thought about this? Socioeconomics really don't matter. The gospel is is not connected to economics. Remember what James says? He's addressing our favoritism in the church, and what does he say? What he says, yeah, go ahead. He says about the rich people, he says, dude, who's taking you to court? (laughs) All right, here we are, back. So I read to you the account of what Jesus was from Matthew 12. Now here's Isaiah. Behold, my servant whom I uphold. So this is speaking forward about what Jesus will be like. My spirit whom I uphold, my chosen one in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring justice to the nations. He will not cry out or raise his voice nor make his voice heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break and a dimly burning wick he will not extinguish. He will faithfully bring forth justice justice. He will not be disheartened or crushed until he has established justice in the earth. And the coastlands will wait expectantly for his law. You know what we want to do there is we we want to say that he's going to establish justice because he has paid the penalty for our sins. That's true. It's the pinnacle. It is the gospel. If you have to say the gospel is one thing, that's what it is. But who says we have to say the gospel is one thing? Since when has God made us disembodied spirits with no flesh, no money, no houses, no cars, no concern for justice? Since when is the justice of God disconnected from 
the slaughter of unborn children. Since when are the people of God concerned about the blood of Jesus Christ, but not the blood of little ones that are killed, little babies? Have we become monsters that we're able to live that kind of of split brain? Listen, we have to be concerned about the poor, the blind, the imprisoned. We have to be concerned about Jesus' little ones. I was talking to Mother Teresa right after Jerry Brown, the governor at the time. He'd just been the governor of California. You know who Jerry Brown is still? He's still alive, okay? You know who Steve Wozniak is? Anybody know? Good. All right. And Jerry had just been over to India to work with Mother Teresa. And I wanted to know what she thought about his spiritual confession because there, there was a lot of talk about him converting to Christian faith while he was over there working with her. And so I said to her, so, so what do you think about Jerry Brown? And here's what she said. She said, when Jerry Brown came over and he worked with the blind and the lepers and, and the, the people dying on the streets that we bring in to, to the missionaries of charity places, she said, Jerry Brown met Jesus Christ. Now, what was she saying? Was she a Catholic that didn't know her Bible? A Roman Catholic? No, no, no. Remember Jesus said, inasmuch as you've done it to the least of these, you've done it to me. Now, I'm not endorsing Mother Teresa's doctrine or Christian commitments, but I am endorsing that statement that when she says that he came over here, and I say, well, what did the Lord do in his heart when he was there in his life? And she said, he met Jesus. And then you think about a governor of California going over to India and working with the lepers and the blind and the lame and the dying. And a woman saying he met Jesus when he came here. Can you understand this? You know, that a professor is judged not by how well they give an extra thrust to the kids at the top of the class, but how well they lower themselves in their teaching to the kids that are fearful that they're going to flunk out and may well. (laughs) All right, okay, I'm coming back. So here we have the Gospel of Matthew. Again and again, it says how the Old Testament is fulfilled in the life of Jesus. One of the things that each Gospel has a focus about the offices of Christ, and he is the prophet, the priest, and the king, okay? Who is Matthew presenting? Matthew's presenting the prophet. That's what it focuses on, is Jesus' office is the prophet. And so you wouldn't be surprised to know that Jesus' words are central to the, to the gospel of Matthew, all right? And then finally, I want us to to note that Matthew is probably the most Jewish or the most Hebrew gospel. Notice that it starts not with Adam. I made a mistake last week and was corrected afterwards that I connected the gospel of Matthew with Adam being the son of God. That's Luke. But Matthew's the Jewish gospel, and so he says the record of the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah, not the son of Adam, but the son of David, the son of Abraham. So it's a Jewish thing, right? Also because it's Jewish, there's a constant emphasis on the number seven. Now, I I said in the first service, I have a lot of trouble with this because I can't stand mathematics. I think numbers are the weirdest things in the world. If people have something to say, why don't they just say it? We don't need another language. We don't need another vocabulary. We already have one, so, so speak to me. You know, that's my view of arithmetic and division, let alone algebra. Except geometry, but of course it uses language. And so I like geometry. It's logical, you know. 
But there's something about scripture that gives special importance to numbers. And in the genealogy, you need to know that the genealogy is broken down into three groups of 14. Seven is the number that's important to the Jews, all right? Jesus is the final name in three groups of 14, and I have to read this because I'm not good with numbers. Thus, he is the one who begins the seventh group of seven. All right? Are you proud of me? All right. Because it's Jewish, there's also the fewest explanations of Jewish and Hebrew customs in Matthew than other gospels, all right? And if you think about this, this makes sense because if your audience is principally Jews, you don't have to explain what's going on with, you know, the holidays, with other traditions of the Jews because you can assume that your readers know this. Finally, Matthew is distinctly evangelistic He reaches out beyond the Israelites to the whole world, and it's in his genealogy that we find three foreigners, three non-Jews, appearing in Christ's family tree, and they are Tamar and Rahab and Ruth. Also, it's in his gospel that the wise men show up. Again, not Jewish. And it's also in Matthew that we find statements like this from Matthew 8. I say to you that many will come from east and west and recline at the table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. Now, can you understand why a Jew would write that? I tell you, there are going to be many outsiders. You know, you think of small towns, outsiders. There are going to be many outsiders who are going to what? They'll come from the east, the west, and they'll recline or we would say they'll sit. They'll sit at the table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. Outsiders. You're an outsider. Yep. Now, Matthew's Jewish. Matthew is writing his gospel for a Jewish audience. Matthew is really into the number seven in the way he sets up his genealogy. Are you with me? Matthew makes a real clear point of bringing Gentiles into the genealogy and also he shows up these Gentile uh, wise men, okay? And Matthew also is the one who's clearest in saying that Gentiles are gonna be brought into the kingdom of God. It all makes sense that it's the Jewish gospel, doesn't it? Now, why would he make such a point of saying Gentiles are going to be brought into the kingdom of heaven? Why is he making such a point of the fact that God is now going to gather men from all nations? And that men includes women. It's inclusive. Why is he making such a point of it? Well, what issue divided the church all through the New Testament epistles? What did everybody fight about in the church? Everybody fought over whether or not the dirty Gentiles should be able to come into the church. That was the division of the New Testament church. The Jews didn't want Gentiles. If they were going to come into the church, they needed to be circumcised because that was the essential method by which they became clean. And so Matthew's really clear in telling the Christians that when it comes to the kingdom of Jesus Christ, the outsiders will be insiders. Now, remember I said, he's the Jewish of the Gospels. Remember that. And so now I say he's real clear in bringing the outsiders in, right? Is everybody with me? He's real clear in blowing apart their notions of who's cool and who's not. Who's in the clique, who's not. Who's racially clean and who isn't. And he says, listen, now God has declared them clean. And he makes this point over and over again. And he he shows them how this too was prophesied in the Old Testament. That God would bring the Gentiles, the dirty Gentiles in. 
Every single one of us here, I believe, other than Bob, is a dirty Gentile. We're in. It's mind-boggling. But I've been sucker-punching you. Because nobody's going to really object so far. After all, you're in. You're a Gentile. I mean, why would you be objecting to that, right? How have I been sucker-punching you? Well, here, I didn't finish the verse. Here's what the verse actually says. The verse says, I say to you, Matthew 8, that many will come from east and west and recline at the table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. And so when he says east and west, he's saying Gentiles. And that's where I stopped reading the text. You remember that? I've read it three times now, and I've stopped there every time. But listen to what he goes on to say. But the sons of the kingdom will be cast out into the outer darkness. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Listen, guys. Matthew is what? Matthew is a Jew. And what does it mean to be a Jew? It means to be a son of the kingdom. It means to be from Wheaton, an evangelical. All right? Matthew is saying God is going to change the way he's doing things, and he's going to bring the Gentiles in, and he's going to cast us into hell. They will become the people of God, and we will become the people of hell. Do you hear it? Did everybody hear what I just read? Can I, can I read it again so I'm sure that you get it? I say to you that many will come from east and west, in other words, Gentiles, and recline at the table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the fathers of the Jews. All right? But the sons of the kingdom, the sons of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, the ones who can trace their lineal descent back through the genealogies, the sons of the kingdom will be cast out into the outer darkness. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Matthew is the Jewish gospel historian. Okay? He's writing to the Jews. So here's the question. We can understand why Matthew would open it up that now God is going to turn to the Jews, right? Now the Jews are going to be welcomed into heaven. But why would the man writing to the Jews, himself a Jew, be so clear in saying that the Jews are now going to be cast out into the weeping and gnashing of teeth in outer darkness? Why would he do that? And here's the reason. I have already told it to you. Because Matthew is writing to the Jews. Because Matthew loves the Jews. Because Matthew loves the Jews. We've gotten into a position where we think that the one that loves us best is the one who never tells us anything negative, never sees our sins, never rebukes us, never admonishes us, and never warns us, who only says nice things about pussycats. Everything that they say to us, because they love us, is velveteen rabbitish. You know, pat the bunny, you know. There's none of that, uh, uh, some days are like that, even in Australia. You know, it's just a sweet story. There's, you know, there's no farmer about to kill Brer Rabbit. Okay. What we have to realize is that when we become Christians and put our faith in Jesus Christ, truth matters to us. We no longer live as if we don't see what's in front of us. We no longer lie to our loved ones because they equate lying with love and kindness. We become the people of the truth, not the people of the lie. And what's the final thing I want to say about the genealogy? Well, (laughs) you know how I always say that Scripture's obviously inspired because all the heroes' faults are just paraded in front of us when we read it? Well, here you've got Jesus, and, and, and it's giving us his genealogy. And who gets included? 
you know, if we were to give our genealogy, I, I, I asked Andrew Henry to call Mary Lee because I forgot to do this in the first, but here's Mary Lee's genealogy. Okay. This last year, Bob has been working on primarily Dad Taylor's ancestors. And so here's 700 pages of work he's done and collected. And he, he bound it up and gave it to all the family. And so now when you look in here, you can imagine that the people that are singled out particularly for notice in his three groups of 14 Who? I mean, who do you think he singles out? Important people. People that have not made you-know-whats of themselves, let alone you-know-whats of themselves. Right? Is that how we get the genealogy of Jesus in, in the book of Matthew? You know? All the good people? Now, I'm, I, there are some bad people in here, but... You know, generally, this is the good side of the family. Generally, the people who are bad don't quite make it. The name might be there, but if you were going to do three groups of 14, and you know those three groups of 14 are not every single generation listed. Many, many people are missed because he's giving you the rhythm of the ancestors of Christ. He's not giving a Mormon genealogy. All right? So here, I'll put this up here. If any of you want to see it, you can come up. Now listen to this. Here's what the Bible says. In verse 3, Judah was the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar. Perez was the father of Hezron and Hezron the father of Ram. Flip it to the next screen, would you please? Did you notice in verse 6, Jesse was the father of David the king, David was the father of Solomon by Bathsheba? And then, if anybody forgot it, who had been the wife of Uriah? Why am I smiling? I'm smiling because I'm up there. I have a place here, guys, because see the murder and adulterer, David. And God particularly calls attention to David being a murderer and an, and an adulterer in the genealogy of his son, Jesus Christ. Particularly calls attention to it. Why else do you think it would say, who had been the wife of Uriah? You remember? Uriah is off fighting. He's an honorable man. David sees his wife. She's a beautiful woman. David takes her to bed. He beds her. All right? And then he calls Uriah back because he finds out she's pregnant. He's gotten her pregnant. And Uriah's been away on business, but the business is war. And so... He brings Uriah back and he keeps trying to get Uriah to sleep with his wife so that it can ostensibly, plausible deniability, you know, so that she can ostensibly have gotten pregnant by her husband. You know, it'd be a little problem of dates, but who knows, might be premature labor, you know. But he can't get Uriah to go into his wife. Why? Because Uriah is an honorable soldier. And he says, I should not have the comfort of my wife when my men are out risking their lives on the battlefield. I will not go into her. And so then what does David do? David kills him, sends him back with a note that he's to be put at the front of the line and when he's in the greatest danger, all the other men are to retreat and Uriah is to be left there to die. And then he gets a message that sure enough, his murder scheme worked. You remember this. And this is, verse 6, 
David was the father of Solomon by Bathsheba who had been the wife of Uriah. And so Solomon is in there. Solomon is the one through whom the line is traced. Solomon becomes the next king. Solomon is the child of that union that began in adultery. Now, if you'd go back to the previous screen. Verse 3, so who is Judah? And who is Tamar? And who is Perez and Zerah? Do genealogies bore you? Do you skip over them when you read them to your children? What did Jesus have to save us from? Okay, so here's the story. The story is that Judah had a son who died and that left a widow and another one of his sons married that woman and he would not give her the son that she wanted because he didn't want that son inheriting money equally with his own children. And so what did he do? Well, he did something that up until a few years ago was always through history referred to as onanism. If you don't know what it is, go home and look it up in a dictionary. All right? And he would not father a child. He was intimate with her, but he would not father a child. He practiced birth control. All right? Of a particular kind that's called onanism. And so then the Bible tells us that he lived a long life and, and went and was gathered to his father's. <laughs> But you know that's not what it says. What it says is, because of what he did, God killed him. It's not what I'm saying, it's what the Bible says. So then the question was, would Onan's father, would her, Tamar's father-in-law, give her another one of his sons? Well, you can imagine, you would not be delighted about uh, giving your son to a woman who, there seemed to be something fatal about being married to her or having intimacy with her. You know, men kept dying. <laughs> you know? So poor Judah, you know, he, he really doesn't want to give another son to this woman, you know? And so what he does is he robs her of a son. He robs her of a son. And so she says, you know what, I'm going to take things into my own hands. So you know what she does? She goes out, and he's off on a business trip, and she knows where he is, and she dresses herself like a prostitute, and she seduces her own father-in-law, brings him into the tent, they have relations, and she becomes pregnant. He has no idea who he has been intimate with. And then when she gets pregnant, it's reported to her father-in-law that the widow is pregnant and the father-in-law says what bring her out we'll burn her to death he's so concerned about justice isn't he she says take these things to my father-in-law and show them tell him that these are the possessions of the one by whom I am pregnant and Judah looks and sees his own possessions. And then he remembers. He thought she was a cult prostitute, you know? He thought she was not a whore, but somebody that made her living off of being intimate with men, you know? But now he finds out, no, no, no. She is his daughter-in-law. And what does he say? He says, she is more righteous than I am. Think about this. She seduced her father-in-law. He says she is more righteous. Why? Because he knows that God cares about justice and the poor. So now she's pregnant with a child. He was going to burn her. Now he says, no, she is more righteous than I am. And then she gives birth. And who does she give birth to? What's the name of that child? Well, that child actually was twins, and their names were Perez and Zerah. And where are they? Verse 3 of the beginning of the New Testament, the genealogy of Jesus Christ.
<laughs> There's no lying in the Bible. All the history is there. You realize that in Russia today, nobody, nobody cares about the history of Joseph Stalin. They think he's a great hero. Who cares about 50, few 50 million here and 100 million there? Who cares? When God writes the history, there's room for sinners. Because God sent his son for sinners and not the righteous. And so right there, there you have it. And so listen, in this church this morning, there are two kinds of people. There are people who say, thank God, yes. And there are people that say, ooh. I was listening to a law enforcement officer in the last week or two describe what it's like to go into a house where a dead body has been sitting. And I've read it before, I've heard it before. He says, you just don't forget the smell. So how do you smell? What's your smell? You smell like death. I'm not talking about in the blood of Christ. In the blood of Christ, everything smells sweeter than the most incredible rose, the most wonderful perfume. But that happens by being washed with the blood of Jesus. I'm asking how you the natural man, the natural woman, how do you smell? And the truth is, all of us smell like those homes that policemen go into for us. We're absolutely putrefied. And the point that we would make about the greatest highest peak we've ever ascended in moral excellence in our life, that moment where we think maybe we had a thought of disinterested love, where we didn't stand to benefit from it at all, that point, God says, is filthy rags, bloody rags. Listen, here's the gospel. The gospel is that Jesus came to save sinners and I'm the chiefest. I'm the chiefest. I am guilty of rape and adultery and murder and incest and dogfighting and littering and smoking. and greed and murdering my own born children. The record of the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah. And Jesus means save, savior. And I've told you what I need to be saved from. What does your family need to be saved from? Last week, and, and then I'll be done. Last week, my son, our son, excuse me, Taylor was sitting over there. And I could tell Taylor didn't approve of my preaching. And 
I watched his face and it was kind of like, it was scrunched up. And not typically, Taylor's usually just stoic, deadpan. But this particular Sunday, he just looked at me and he was like this. So afterwards, I said to him, I couldn't stop in the middle of the sermon and find out what I was doing wrong. <laughs> so afterward, I said to him, Taylor, why did you have that face? What, what, what was I doing wrong? And he said, well, nobody knows about who Jerry Sandusky is. And I said, oh, come on, everybody knows. No, he said, they have no idea what you were talking about. Now do you know what we're talking about? Verse three, you know? I told you the story, okay? If this is in the genealogy of Jesus and it's singled out for note, then it's a happy day. <laughs> it's a happy day because he came to wash your sins away. Oh, happy day. Think of all the crud in your family that you don't ever want anybody to know. You know, David and Stephen and I are inundated with incest right now and child molestation. One day this week, three separate cases I dealt with, and it's not in this church, okay, but we're pastors to people in, in, in their lives beyond us. What's going to happen? All of America is going to all of a sudden start telling their stories, right? When one person lives out loud and is undressed out loud like this coach was, and when this is put in the genealogy, then all of us have the freedom to confess our sins. All of us have the freedom not to go, naughty, naughty, naughty. <laughs> bad Judah, bad Tamar. But all of us have the freedom to say, if they're in there, then there's hope for me. Come to Jesus. Come to Jesus. It's so tiring to lie and hide. And the message of the Gospels, you don't have to. Jesus already knows who you are. You can't hide it from him. And if you were a timid sort who thought, oh yeah, but my sins are so awful that there's no hope for me. And then you see David there, and in case you forgot who David was, <laughs> the Bible says that he was married to Bathsheba, who, what? Had been the wife of Uzziah. And here we've got Tamar, and we've got her father-in-law come to Jesus. Listen, I have said to you before the greatest privilege that I have and David and Stephen have and the elders have is to hear your confessions of sin, to share your tears, and the reason is because then we are privileged to pronounce to you the promises of God that though your sins are as scarlet, that they will be white as snow. That as far as the east is from the west, so far has God removed the believer's transgressions. That like as a father pities his children, so the Lord pities them that fear him, for he knows our frame that we are made of dust. Yeah. I mean, what a genealogy, <laughs> you know? I mean, is, ain't that a genealogy that a man can like? <laughs> huh? That's one my name can be in. All right, let's pray. Father, I pray that after this service, there will be men and women who 
have faith to come to Jesus with their sin so that it might wash them clean. Thank you for Matthew's genealogy and for the hope that it gives us. That Jesus really meant it when he said, come to me all you who are weary and heavy laden and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me for I am meek and gentle of heart and you shall find rest for your souls. We love you, Jesus. Come to us. Let us come to you, we pray in Jesus' name, amen.